Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of October 11th. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin, and joined again today by Josh Blank, Research Director for the Texas Politics Project. Uh, enjoying the switch to the fall to fall weather, Josh? Uh, I always love the switch to fall weather. It's my favorite yeah, switch. It's, a, it's very sweet out there, but not not fallish by probably a lot of people's standards in the rest of the country. But no, no, Austin fall, which is like it's Austin, <laughs> which is like it's a it's like well maybe I'll put on a I'll put on a long sleeve shirt to feel good about it, but it's still warm. Yeah, but but I'll layer still. <laughs> yeah, it's still layered. Yes. <laughs> so you know, a lot going on here. Uh, you know, what we thought we'd talk about today, you know, really is something that broke last night. Um, you know, late yesterday, and we're recording on Tuesday, the twelfth. Governor Greg Abbott issued yet another in a long line of executive orders. This one banning any entity in Texas, including private businesses, from requiring vaccinations for employees or for customers. He also added to the call for the ongoing but winding down third legislative session, special session here for the legislature to act on on the same subject. The legislature is, as I've said, in its third special session, but it ends very soon, October 19th. As as we're recording this, the the House is actively debating uh, the redistricting maps for the House. Um, So there's a lot going on. And and so there's a lot to unpack here. You know, I, I at the First cut, this is hardly a surprising turn for the governor. It strikes me as we're talking about, particularly given the way that the governor framed this, um, you know, I think we both had calls from reporters asking, mm-hmm. is this a is this a response to the federal order issued by Joe Biden? Uh, what is driving this? Why, why now? Um, a bunch of questions, but I think are all very good questions. But I think there's a, you know, I think there's no single answer to this. I think, mm-hmm. you know, and we were talking about this beforehand. The original kind of impulse is, oh, this must be a response to Biden's September order that required all employers with more than 100 workers to mandate vaccines for workers and or to test weekly. Federal government had earlier required all federal workers and contractors to get vaccinated. You know, this wound up encompassing all the major airlines um, who are contractors for the for the federal government to announce that they'd abide by the mandate. And, and those that hadn't already started implementing some sets of carrots and sticks for doing this. It, it seems to me there's a lot going on here. One would never rule out using the Biden administration as a foil for COVID or anything else. You know, but but I think Abbott himself certainly encouraged that interpretation, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, we were talking about, I mean, we both, <laughs> we got up this morning, we had one of our usual chats and, you know, I think the reaction was, you know, on the one hand, you know, this kind of make, you know, this makes a lot of sense that you'd see Abbott doing this, but also kind of a why and why now? Right. And yeah. and I mean, I think the thing, you know, in a very social science way, you know, sort of the way that you know, kind of start thinking about this is like, well, this makes a lot of sense, but it's not clear to me that it's one thing that's driving this or whether it's a constellation of a lot of sort of different little things pushing in 
a similar direction, but the effect is all the same. And I guess, you know, but the interpret, I, I guess the interpretation matters because we're talking about it. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of proximate things to look at, right? I mean, right. you know, we could take our pick. I mean, I'm going to pick one, I'll, I'll pick one and then you pick another one. I mean, okay. one of the interesting ones I think is that Southwest Airlines based in Texas had a very bad weekend. Tough weekend. Where they canceled like many, many flights. That like over a thousand flight. I mean, something crazy. Right. And, and, you know, kind of threw their, their system into chaos. And this really started near as I can tell Friday afternoon. And so there was, you know, a certain amount of speculation that this might've fed the timing Mm -hmm. um, because one of the early interpretations now being pretty, you know, vociferously denied by Southwest and some of the principles was that, you know, the pilot union had, had taken action against the pilots union, at Southwest had taken action against Southwest for this in court. Um, there had been complaints and that this was perhaps some kind of a work action by the pilots. And I saw the uh, the president of Southwest Airlines on CNBC this morning. And that's, you know, just the fact of that appearance mm-hmm. uh, suggested a desire to get some messaging out there who was really not having any of it. Um, mm-hmm. The CNBC anchors were pushing him pretty hard and repeatedly and kept coming back to it. And he stayed, you know, you know, pro that he is very on message and saying that that is not what it was. It had to do with, you know, uniform outages in Florida and and pushed on this that Southwest is, you know, the implication was sort of uniquely vulnerable to this mm-hmm. because of their, you know, the the degree to which they use they fly out of these Florida cities. Um, but nonetheless, that was one of the things that was out there, and you know that this would, you know, perhaps provide good context. Certainly, I think that in itself is not going to explain this. You know, there are lots of other proximate things. What's another proximate thing you would pick? Well, I mean, this isn't, you know, this is sort of, you know, I'll suppose it's a proximate thing, but it's not, it doesn't actually push in the direction per se, you know, in the same direction, which is, you know, it was odd to me, given that, you know, the end of last week in particular, you know, there seemed to be a little bit of, uh, well, maybe this is actually proximate. <laughs> I think about, it. you know, there's a little bit of victory lap going on about, you know, how effective these mandates have been at increasing the number of vaccines that were being given. Now, right. a large number of those vaccines were booster shots, but ultimately, I mean, it seemed to me if you were kind of looking at coverage last week and looking at the the decline in COVID case counts all around the country, including in Texas, which is separate from this, but, you know, still kind of another kind of related piece that we could also touch on next. I mean, most of the coverage was talking about how these vaccine mandates, especially by employers, seem to be really increasing vaccination rates, unsurprisingly. And at the same time, I guess maybe the more proximate thing that kind of, I would say, allows for a move that is, you know, certainly not going to help combat the virus is the fact that it seems like the Delta variant is is receding a little bit in terms of, you know, uh, the effect that it was having on public health and, you know, on hospitals and on case counts and everything like that. So to some degree, you know, it's hard to imagine, let's say that Abbott would have made this announcement, you know, let's say four or five weeks ago, you know, six weeks ago, even if, you know, even if the principle was still important and it was there, or even maybe right after Biden announced the federal mandate, given where we were with the Delta. But, you know, when you're looking around and, you know, I think, you know, you kind of feel this going around, I think out and about town, like people are starting to feel a little bit safer again, the case counts are going down. Sure. And ultimately, you know, this was probably gets a little bit less pushback now than it would have, let's say a month or two ago. Maybe. Right. Yeah, say had he put it on the agenda for the third session. Right, when he when he announced it, sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably something to that, that there's less 
there's less dissonance with the fact that, you know, they've not been saying much about public health to mm-hmm. understate the case, as we've mentioned on this in these conversations many times before. And so, yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And I, you know, I think another, another proximate factor that I think comes to mind is, you know, and, and this may be a little too diffuse, I guess, but Republican public opinion at the, at the popular level, which we'll talk about as one of the deeper, you know, less proximate factors, right. you know, was driven or, you know, has been driven on COVID very much by the model that was sent that was set by the Trump administration during the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think the, you know, the general sense of denial of the, of the severity of, of the pandemic and who is to blame and how it should be handled. And, you know, I mean, there's a whole set of attitudes that we're now seeing in, you know, among Republican voters in Texas and elsewhere that really, you know, had its precedent set and has not been reversed by, you know, had its precedent set by the Trump administration during the Trump administration by the president and his allies. And it's not really turned since then, it seems to me. And, and there's also, I mean, some longer term correlates here in terms of, you know, we talk about, you know, the the polarization of, you know, vote choice by college attainment, for right. example. And so, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things I think it's been striking in the polling, and we won't get into this per se for this point, but but ultimately, you know, we ask about whether people feel that, you know, vaccines are generally safe, generally effective, not talking about the COVID vaccine. Right. And one of the things that I think, you know, w- was clear is that, you know, in general, I mean, something that's kind of important to remember here, vaccinations aren't a normal course of, of action for a lot of people. And they're probably yeah. going to be less of a course of action for people without a college education. And then when you look at, again, sort of the group among whom, you know, Abbott is speaking to in terms of, you know, Repu- you know rank and file Republican voters. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people out there who like to write this about the national electorate, you know, that the modal voter is like a 55 year old white guy without a college degree. Well, that guy doesn't often get a, doesn't get a flu vaccine every year, right. <laughs> you know? And yeah, so, so, yeah, I mean, so the, you know, I mean, so that's another piece here, I think, in terms of. Yeah. So like, you know, the as reaction. there's so many things, it's not like Donald Trump Invented it wasn't wasn't working <laughs> with you know a well well needed clay already shall we say as he was sculpting the the electorate in his image um, or an image he wants anyway right um, to really torture that metaphor but I mean the other piece of that that I was going for more proximate is that given all of that um, you know last with the last few weeks have been a little unstable in terms of the relationship between Donald Trump and Greg Abbott. In that, yeah. you know, to the extent that Donald Trump had endorsed Greg Abbott in his reelection effort for gov- for governor, mm-hmm. um, and had come and, and visited, you know, made a border appearance with Governor Trump, there was a certain amount of alignment between, you know, public alignment anyway between Donald Trump and and Greg Abbott that was beneficial to Abbott, and certainly, you know, Trump would not have done it had he not thought it was beneficial to himself. And yet, in the last couple of weeks, there had been a, some some disagreement over the priority that the governor was giving to certain aspects of election and voting reform, Mm -hmm. you know, and so you suddenly had this, you know, this, this position in which Donald Trump was sending a letter to Greg Abbott that we talked about, I think on this podcast a few weeks ago, urging putting vote audits on the special, on the, on the agenda for the special session, Mm -hmm. uh, expressing dissatisfaction with the priority given. And, you know, and it felt like Donald Trump was kind of, you know, putting pressure on Greg Abbott in ways that raised a lot of questions here that we can get to about, you know, who was influenced, I think came up in the podcast, who is influencing Abbott on this? And, you know, some people say, well, duh, you idiot, we know who this is. But 
we haven't had a lot of direct reporting on this. Right. That's another subject, but the point being, it's hard for me not to think that Governor Abbott adopting a position that is so in line with Republican voters and so connected with Donald Trump isn't a way of pivoting away from that a little bit, you know, and that this kind of a pivot is good for them in terms of what, you know, at the time that, you know, Donald Trump is coming out and doing rallies again, there's a lot of mm-hmm. national media coverage right now of Trump and his plans for 2024 and, and what, how he's sticking his fingers in different, you know, levels of state politics and different politics in the country, you know, to try to influence outcomes, you know, and this is a very, you know, this is very Trumpian in its aggressiveness as well as its content. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, and I mean, you definitely got some, some specifics in the way that you would, you would support that. I mean, one of the things that I would point <laughs> out that kind of strikes me, and again, it's sort of a, a highfalutin Trumpiness aspect of this, which is, you know, the extent to which, uh, you know, this kind of flies in the face of sort of Republican, I, I would say the Republican approach to this up until this point, which has really been to let businesses do what they want, right? I mean, if we kind of go back to the, the whole Shelley Luther kerfuffle and Salat Alamode and all, and all of that, part of that was, you know, the idea that, you know, local businesses and, you know, bi- and for, you know, businesses are people, right? We've accepted that as part of the, the, pol- the political, you know, rules here was that, you know, it was too much for government to tell businesses what they could and could not do for COVID. And here we are, you know, some number of months later, and it's kind of like, well, I'm going to tell businesses what they can't do about COVID. Right. And ultimately, these are private businesses. And it's sort of it's an interesting jump. And it really does muddle the framing, I think, around the politics of this a bit if people care to look or even care about the muddling of the framing. Again, I'm skeptical that anybody cares but I mean, we were talking about this earlier about how you know there's this fuzzy frame of public health versus individual liberty, but you know if businesses are people and individuals, and now all of a sudden it's like, well, actually, you know, no. Yeah, I you know I I was just kicking this around with a with a reporter, and you know I'm not really you know I mean I, in talking to a reporter, I it's fair enough to just say, well, if you're going to bet on be people being cognitively consistent in their political views, you know you're probably going to go broke pretty fast. Oh yeah, yeah. Which you know I know is a big no. you know is a big you know Frustra- uh, frustration with hypocrisy very, very frequently. Well, frustration with hypocrisy is not going to get you very far. So just you know, right? You know, and I think there is something to that, but I think that the, there's a you know I guess the way that I kind of process that is you know look on one hand it's reasonable to be struck by the blitheness with which this kind of declaration seems to fly in the face of consistency, but it does go back a little bit to the, to the using Biden as a foil thing, which, you know, I mean, I, I suspect that if there was a press conference and the governor is asked about that, he would say that all we're doing is restoring the equilibrium that the Biden administration has disrupted. Yeah. Now I do, I, do I buy that as a logical argument? Well, not really. Do I think it probably suffices for his audience? Uh, I think it probably does. Well, and you know, the other thing is, I mean, I think it reinforces something that you had brought up earlier about, you know, Southwest and the overall business environment in 2021 and everything else, which is, I think, you know, there's something here to say, you know, if you, I mean, I remember, you know, we were talking, I was reading last week about, uh, you know, the efforts by the airlines to require vaccinations amongst its very, you know, their very, very large workforces and the, and the, the you know, the too long didn't read version of it. 
is basically the vast, vast majority of these employees who are required to be mandated, you know, who are mandated to be vaccinated, got vaccinated. Like if you look like United or Delta, some of these big airlines, right? And and when I say that, when I say like the vast majority, I mean we're talking like you know ninety nine percent of the employees. There are some edge cases where where employees were refusing, but ultimately, you know, the idea that govern, you know, that basically, you know, the federal government is imposing mandates on businesses that is leading to a restriction in individual liberty that is further hurting employment. And just slowing stuff down, right? right? Is the argument, right? That all, I mean, that all fits a piece, right? I mean, ultimately, and I think you know, so there's a reinforcement there that, yeah, I think you know, it does. you kind of pick and choose what's what's salient to you or what kind of makes sense. But for Abbott and for the people that he's speaking to, like, I think there's a lot of things to latch onto here that are going to make a lot of sense about what he's doing here, even if from a public health standpoint, it doesn't make sense. In strictly political terms. You know, this play for Greg Abbott is kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, it's right super in the easy. sense of looking at the at the narrow issues. You know, we've asked about you know support or opposition, and I you know feel like we we did a good job of, po- of framing these questions because we didn't. We've asked them as legislative or gubernatorial policy. But we've also asked them just in general, like mm-hmm. you know, do you support or oppose allowing businesses to require their customers? To provide proof of vaccination, or do you support or oppose allowing private employers to require their employees to do same? And the results speak to what we're seeing, right? Right. I mean, so when we ask about, you know, let's just get right to the more specific one, allowing allowing private employers to require their employees to either provide proof of vaccination or submit to frequent COVID testing. When we look overall, 53% of Texans say they support this. 36% 36% were in opposition, which sounds like, oh, slam dunk. You know, why is, and you'd say almost, well, why is Abbott doing this, right? You know, except it's totally being driven by Democrats. 90% of Democrats support basically vaccine requirements from employers. 62% of Republicans oppose it. So it's a little bit more of a split issue for Republicans. There's still a quarter of Republicans who would support vaccine mandates uh, right. from employers. But ultimately, and we've kind of made this point, I think we've made this point in the last couple of most frequent podcasts, it's not like that 27% of Republican voters is likely to turn around and say, I don't know, vote for Beto right. O'Rourke or whomever the Democratic nominee is. Yeah. And there's a lot of intensity there, right? I mean, you know, right. in those numbers you gave, you know, among Republicans who oppose this, you know, as you said, 62% oppose it, 53% strongly oppose it, and 77% of Democrats strongly support these these kinds of mandates, or the mandate that the, the question asked about, mm-hmm. and so you know you're, you know he's striding into very familiar political terrain here. You, you know, there's one I even forgot about in terms of the reinforcing attitudes here. I mean, I think I just saw this today, where you know Dr. Anthony Fauci goes up and kind of points out how few religions ban vaccines. It's like, why would you be saying yeah. this? Well, it's because because that's the other thing. This idea that there are just tons of people out there for whom they have religious objections. To vaccines, and now the Democratic-led federal government is trying to force these people to disobey their religion. And again, not happening. Not happening at a wide, you know, in any sort of widespread way. But it fits the frames. And that's, I mean, maybe you know, this is funny. I mean, we had this discussion earlier about this frame of you know public health versus individual liberty. But what's funny is there are so many more accessible and easier frames. I think that honestly are probably closer to the source and easier for people to grasp onto here. That you know, in and of themselves do a better job of explaining this than, you know, any sort of like worry about cons- ideological consistency and what it means to be a Republican in, you know, 2021 right. or anything like that. 
you know, and I don't know about you. I mean, I, I'm beginning to feel a little twinge almost sometimes every time I kind of go, okay, look, a lot going on here. We can talk about proximate causes. We can talk about right. these structural, we can talk about all this stuff right. and it does help unpack it. And I think particularly for people that are not in Texas, it's a worthwhile enterprise and it, and it gets you something. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it still feels like this is just one more instance that feeds into the policy and politics are just so focused on Republican primaries right now. I mean, I feel like a broken record. You know, we say it every week in the podcast, friends or, you know, acquaintances or whoever you're talking to says, hey, what is going on here? And you kind of go, well, you know, you kind of got to look at the Republican primary, the focus on the Republican primaries. And I, you know, I I think that all these other things that we can unpack Mm -hmm. help shade that and they're contributing and they're intertwined. But in the end, that's a huge part of it. Yeah, you know, and I think the thing is, and it's something I sort of, it's funny, I don't know what it is about this thing that kind of unlocks a little bit more of that in some ways, because you're right, you know, we've talked about this for a while. And if you said, you know, if we were talking, you know, circa, whatever, you know, 2013, you know, about what was going to be going on in the 2014 elections, we'd be talking a lot about the Republican primaries also. But I think there is something that has kind of fundamentally shifted, right? I mean, and the other kind of conversation we've been having a lot is like the sort of, you know, how much is too much or how far is too far. Right. But I think, that, you know, these things all relate in a very kind of clear way, which is, you know, one of the things that, you know, we've been talking about a lot is the extent to which our Texas politics have nationalized a bit. And yeah. what, I, what I mean when I say that is two things. One, I point to really the Democrats, not the Republicans, right? I mean, you know, it wasn't like there wasn't a, a huge well of intense negative opinion towards Barack Obama. I mean, that's obvious. And yes. Almost is an understatement, right? Yeah. Full stop. It, <laughs> it's not as though the vast, vast majority of Republicans have, you know, haven't been identifying as conservatives, you know, for the entirety of the, you know, the decade plus of the poll and before that. So that's, you know, full and stop. And haven't trade. been deeply negative about Democrats. Right. The thing that was different for a while, and we've brought this up before, is that, you know, Greg Abbott usually had some job approval from like 20, 25 percent of Democrats, especially after a major disaster. Uh, You know, the intensity of negative opinion towards uh, Republican leaders in the state wasn't nearly the same intensity as they showed towards national leaders. Um, And it's, you know, and I would say towards Donald Trump at the beginning. But ultimately, that's changed. Right. And so what you have is, is that I think, you know, you look at those numbers we're talking about, you know, yeah, Republicans may be a little bit more ambivalent on this than are Democrats. But the thing is, Democrats are lost to Abbott. Yeah. Gone. The idea that Abbott could, you know, maybe, let's say, count on Republican votes and then maybe also expect to get some share of Democratic votes, especially if the Democrats have like a a relatively weak candidate, that's gone. And so ultimately, what does that leave you? Well, it ultimately leaves him with a situation where he needs to A, win the Republican primary, and then B, turn out as many Republican voters as he can. And right. so I think what we're kind of witnessing is something that has been true all along, which is, you know, again, a focus on Republican primaries for sure. But that was always within the context of, hey, we don't want to go too far because we still have a general election to run. So we don't necessarily want to let everybody carry a gun. We don't necessarily want to ban abortion. But, you know, if you look at the, again, the fact that Texas is now more of a competitive state, the fact is, you know, independent voters, you know, we'll go back and take a look at them. They talk about seeing on a podcast, but, you know, seem to have really kind of shifted in their opinion and tone towards state government, you know, driven in no small part by the pandemic, surely. And really, you know, you kind of look at that and say, so now what's Abbott doing? Well, he's solely trying to appeal 
to Republican voters. And right now, the most important Republican voters are the primary voters. But I don't even think, you know, we say like, well, when the general election, is he going to is he going to tack back and become more moderate? It's like, you know, I think it'll be a change in emphasis and it'll depend. But ultimately, I think, you know, Republicans are going and saying our job is to turn out, I mean, especially at the statewide level, Republican voters. That's the focus. That's what it is. Yeah, I think that general frame is is about right. And, you know, I mean, we keep sort of talking about that. And I think that we can emphasize both, you know, the absence of competitive pressure among Democrats, you know, that the Democrats are going to be able to exert. And to the extent that something shifts and the agenda somehow breaks their way, which I don't expect it to. I mean, the agenda is sometimes some part in the environment and part what you can put on the agenda. And neither of those seem to be, you know, as of now, at least likely to turn in the Democrats' direction in Texas at that point. Now they could, but but the other piece is, you know, I, I think I think there has been a realization on the Republican side that, you know, they need to be ready not just to mobilize their, you know, what we have traditionally thought of as their base voters, mm-hmm. but be ready to go out and tap into the reserve army of Republican voters, of which there are many in an electorate with such low levels of turnout. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, and I don't know why I've been so. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a backwater of this conversation in some ways, <laughs> you know. But you kind of flagged the whole thing about the pivot. But you know, the notion of a pivot has been so central to the conventional wisdom mm-hmm. of politics in the state and national politics. And I'm not, you know, as you kind of imply there. I mean, I, you know, I think the nature of that has changed. You know, in terms of what that pivot is and and what we even would mean by that. I think we tend to, you know, we tend to think of that pivot in Downsian or ideological space. And I think it's it's a little different now. It's about what you talk about, not how you're talking about things, you know, mm-hmm. to some degree. And and, you know, the whole ability of the party to rely of the Republican Party to rely on their resource advantage to say, you know, you know, I mean, and I think this is sort of the the lesson again that came out of 2018 and 2020 to a lesser degree, but especially 2018 is that. If things don't break our way and we get in a jam, we have the resource and organizational advantage to get out of whatever jam we might get in in the general election. And we'll deal with that problem when the time comes. Well, and, and you know, now they're reinforcing the institutional advantage through redistricting and voting rules. Right. So, I mean, there's there's that layer on top of it. But I mean, I was just kind of looking real quick in our August poll. Eighty three percent of Democrats strongly disapprove of the job Greg Abbott's doing. Right. 83%. Another 7% merely disapprove somewhat. Point being, there aren't going to be a lot of, de- no matter who the Democratic candidate is for governor, Greg Abbott's not getting many Democratic votes, period. Right. And so this is not about that. This is at this point, you have two you know, competitive parties, it, it would seem. <laughs> you know, there's some, you know, some evidence contrary. But uh, you know, essentially, this is about mobilizing Republican voters and focusing on their, their issues. And to the extent that it looks a little bit more extreme and a little bit, you know, more widespread, well, that's what it, I think that's a pretty, you know, large part of the underlying, you know, I would say, you know, set piece of what's going on here. And we are looking at a campaign. I mean, in terms of the, the topic at hand, we are looking at a campaign that is a year away. Right. In terms of the general election. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can all knock on wood, but pending another, you know, the emergence of another variant. And I wouldn't, you know, certainly wouldn't rule that out, but it does seem like we're getting in a position where we're in a better and better handle, better, better position to handle that as time goes on. And and slowly but surely we reach higher vaccination levels. You know, it's going to be hard to point back at this a year from now and say, 
yeah, but remember when Governor Abbott, you know, so and so, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's just it's just a tougher play. You know, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, but what it does do potentially is, I mean, you know, we're not getting this point, but we'll say this. I mean, what it what does allow Democrats to do is at this point, you know, point to the overall handling of government. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, you've got the winter storm, you've got 65,000 Texans who've died. If, you know, if, if COVID a year from now is still affecting our way of life in a, in a serious way, you know, it'll be easy to point to all of the ways in which right. the governor, you know, stood in the way of, of, of public health recommendations. And I'd also add to all of this, you know, we still don't know. I mean, we always talk about, you know, Tesla just announced it's moving its headquarters to Austin. I mean, I'm not sure that in the next, you know, six to eight months, we don't find that there are businesses that leave Texas. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but if it does, that also adds to this idea of, you know, how the state is being run. And then it's less about a specific agenda item than it is about, what I think all challengers want, which is this is a referendum on the incumbent. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that, you know, we were talking about this earlier. Overall, there is a a potential for an overall governance critique here. Right. But like so many other things, you you do need a vehicle for that critique. <laughs> Ideally, you, you think <laughs> like, so. Like, you know, let me think. What am I thinking of as a vehicle? Like a gubernatorial candidate, for example. For example. Just like to pull funded- one out of the... A fund. Yeah. I mean, there, there are gubernatorial candidates out there. I just want to be clear. Yeah. But like you know, with funding, who are actively campaigning and raising and money. who can and who can provide a focus for the counter argument, right? You know, to what right. the what what the Republican candidate will will be arguing in the fall. So, you know, I think this points to a couple things that we'll we'll put pins in for future podcasts. One, it, you know, is the role of independence, and as you were talking about. You know, the evidence that to some degree there was more discontent among, you know, we see evidence of more discontent among independents than we've seen in the recent past. We also know, another one of your favorite themes, that, you know, if we look at the trend lines of approval ratings of independents, independence attitudes on various of-the-moment issues, they move around a lot. They're a fickle bunch. Well, in, they're fickle and they're, 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 as a group, they are, I'm Choosing my words carefully here to not offend any independent well, we'll listeners. We say, we'll say any independent listener who is listening to this podcast, you in and of yourself are an unusual independent. Right, you're not. Why, you're, and yes. why is that? Right, because you know you're not as impressionable, and, and that impressionable <laughs> is the word that I'm going to choose rather. I was going to say others. I was going to say you're far more engaged than right. our most. Well, which is also true. But the point being that you know, independents are very impressionable, and they are much more subject. It seems to the you know shifts in mood and and overall, you know, sensitive to the biggest problems being out there in the ether. Yeah, and proximate and, and factors. The proximate factors, you know, tend to drive their their judgments. And we've seen that in Governor Abbott's approval numbers and their right track, wrong track assessments, almost anything. If you go to the Texas Politics Project website, we've got a, a page in the blog section that looks at trend data on approvals of job leaders and assessments of the environment. And you look and you can look when you look at the Republican and the Democratic responses, in a lot of cases, you can kind of say, oh, there's big movements because of partisanships and the identity of the party affiliation of the person being affiliated or shifts in the assessment of, say, the national economy based on who's in the White House, party control, et cetera. You don't see those kinds of patterns with independence. What you see is, you know, in some ways, a much more interesting because it's much more erratic and consistent pattern among independents who are very subject to things in the ether. And as we've said over and over again, a lot of things going on in the environment right now, and we're seeing that in independent attitudes. That's cutting against the governor and and incumbents right now 
I think it remains to be seen whether they will find ways to bring them back by choosing issues that that they think will move independence. Yeah, I think it's going to be hard. I mean, ultimately, you know, there's yeah. been a shift in independence. We witnessed it since sort of basically better work versus Ted Cruz. And I mean, I think the, you know, either, you know, independence either, I was just, they react, you know, sort of erratically to sort of the news of the day in some ways, but also these other issues we're talking about, you know, the winter storm, COVID, you know, kids wearing masks in school, some of these things that, you know, I think some people who are sort of loosely attached and don't really care for the political arguments might say, well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're good. They're good. I think what, you know, what I was, I, they're good targets for the governance argument. Yeah. They're, well, they're not, they're not, potentially. Bound, they're not bound by the overwhelming anchors of partisanship and negative partisanship. And right. so, you know, in that sense, they are, one could argue, they like independents often like to argue, you know, they do have the possibility of having a more clear eyed view of things. If they're paying <laughs> yeah. attention. Well, right. That's a I think that's a nice qualified way of putting that. So <laughs> that's a good that's a good note to end on. So we're here, we're trying to be clear-eyed if you know, and as independent as possible, but attentive. Thanks to Josh for being here today. Thanks to our staff in the liberal arts development studio on what has been, I know, a busy day for them. Thanks to you for listening. As always, you can find this podcast, references to the data that we've talked about, and lots and lots of other things, including all all of our public polling data at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. So thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 